Hi there folks, just a quick PSA before we start. Ever since I messed around with the website, some people are having problems accessing the podcast on their podcast apps. Now, I don't fully understand why this is because I've tested the feed on iOS, on Android, on different devices and using different podcast apps and all seems to be working well on my end. So if you are experiencing problems, I would recommend unsubscribing from the podcast in your podcast player of choice. And this is important, searching for the podcast using the search function in your podcast player of choice. Whatever it surfaces for you, subscribe to that and that should be the working feed. Meant to bring this up on the show, but I totally forgot. PSA done. Apologies for any inconvenience. On with the show. Good morning, Interweb. Welcome back to the Artifexian podcast in this month's episode. We discuss King Charlie's big do, follow up on Irish orthography, Bill writes about the lack of booze behind the barricades in Dansk, and we set a Master of Gin by P. Jelly Kirk as the next book for the Artifexian book club. All that, plus lots more, in this month's episode. may need to cut this because I'm not sure how, how interested you are in talking about this. I'm not sure how interested uh, the listeners are in hearing about this, but uh, you didn't happen to tune into uh, old Charity's coronation there yesterday by any chance. I did not, no. <laughs> you did not. Okay, can I bring up something that I I did? I kept it on in the background a little bit, and I don't know why I do this, because I have, like, no love for the monarchy at all, but I guess there is something so kind of, like, um, I guess hilariously anachronistic about the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, and, like, the whole pomp and circumstance. And there's, like, a, there's like a giant gold carriage. Like, come on, like, that's mm-hmm. insane. It's the 21st century, and there's a giant gold, gold carriage. So part of me is kind of, like... I want to see the sort of, uh, yeah, the, the pomp. Um, but when I had it on in the background, they were, they were playing a lot of music. Mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of music was being sung by, by choir. A lot of choral music was being sung. Um, and I was struck by how kind of like uh, modern the music was. It was crazy. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know if this is par for the course. Like every time there is a coronation, some new music gets commissioned. Um, but like they weren't just singing Zadok the Priest all day long. Like there was new composition. Zadok the Priest is a banger, though. It is a banger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will leave this in in show notes. Uh, everyone knows this. They've definitely heard it before, uh, and it, it it is a banger. And I believe they played that at um, uh, Lizzie's coronation back in the day. And they may even have done it for Charles's as well. But um, I, I didn't tune into the full like seven hour thing. Um, but yeah, I was really surprised and I began Googling some of the composers and I don't know if you know a chap called Tarek O'Regan. Um, I don't think so. He's a notable sort of new choral composer, a contemporary choral composer. And a lot of the kind of, like, obviously now, like, you know, given the context, it's not going to be like mad, uh, you know, Lux Eterna, Ligeti sort of choral music, Mm. but there was like kind of real injections of like modernism and contemporary aesthetics into the works within reason again for the context and i was kind of taken aback by that i was like wow this is an institution that prides itself on being extremely uh, conservative and extremely traditional yet yeah. it appears to have opened up the door at several points during the proceedings here to like what i would describe again in this context as being like somewhat radical choral music 
like there was mind blowing to me. It's fascinating, and I kind of want to go do a bit of a d- deep dive into whether or not this is this is commonplace. Insofar as coronations are in fact common, um, but that yeah that 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 struck me. So I just I wanted to bring it up. Um, that's that's interesting um, because. I remember when Peter Maxwell Davies was the master of the Queen's music. I think he wrote very little for for royal affairs, like he because there was royal weddings and stuff during his tenure, and I don't think he actually wrote anything uh, for them. But I'm just I'm just reading it here now. And Judith Weir, who's the who's the current master of the King's music, um, has written stuff, did write stuff for the the coronation. Um, what is what is a master of the King's music? Um. It's like a, a an office, um, where like a composer is is given kind of a, a post and is is given this kind of status, um, as like the royal composer. And then yeah, with the idea that if there are births, deaths, marriages, sort of thing, writes a music for it. Yeah, and hmm. yeah, no, maybe if there had been an, a coronation or something, um, there would have been. You know, Peter Maxwell Davies would have been asked to write something, but I don't think he did anything for the for the royal weddings or much else that happened during his tenure. Um, uh, I, I w- I'll leave links again in the show notes to Peter Maxwell Davies because he, he definitely isn't a name that is broadly known. Um, but uh, he was capable of writing some absolutely avant-garde nonsense. And I say that with all the love in my heart. Like, it's some real out-there um, stuff. And I wonder... Davies stuff. Davy stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Mad King George thing springs to mind. Eight songs for a Mad King. Yeah, I'll link yeah. as well, folks, so you can go check it out. It's 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 crazy. Um and I I wonder maybe he was kind of neutered a little bit in his role as as whatever that, that office was called, I can't remember. Um he because of um Lizzie's sort of conservatism because she was very much at least the crown has me believe the Netflix Netflix show that she mm. was very much like tradition 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 and mm. Charles is depicted in that as being a sort of like um being a modernizer and wanting to always modernize the crown so maybe this is his call maybe he's kind of like we can't just keep having Zadok the priest being sung from now until the end of eternity we need we need new music so maybe he was behind this it, it would seem in fitting with the way his character is portrayed in popular media anyway so possibly yeah no charlie down with the kids <laughs> sentences you, never an opinion never before uh, expressed <laughs> do you see the do you see the protests as well uh i saw that a load of um republican protesters were arrested on very mm. very spurious grounds Sure, I I would rather not discuss the sort of like seriousness of that nature. If I I would like to lead into the more comic element of things, if that's okay to keep things like light-hearted. Sure. lighthearted. I absolutely adore uh, comedy in protest movements. I think it's one of my favorite subgenres of comedy. I love it. Like I love when there's like a serious thing that needs fixing in the world. I love that people can approach these uh, when protesting with the the sort of um, gravitas. Can approach it with gravitas and humor, right? Like, so they're clearly there to be like, we don't want the monarchy, but also while we're at it, let's just make really silly jokes. Like that one dude whose sign said, he's just some guy. 
for for Charles. Like he isn't some sort of like magic wizard. He's just the bloke. Or like the only good king is Burger King. And it's just <laughs> I love that people will do that. And no matter where you go, at least in my experience for pro of protest movements, you'll always be people like like I ardently believe in this cause. But here is a hilarious gag. And I just love that. I think that's really cool. There was was it in you said it was in Wrocław in Poland, um there was a late kind of late 80s so towards the end of the communist era uh like subversive movement um where they would dress up as dwarves and just like they'd like put on like big big beards and and hats and just like disrupt things happening in the streets and it was like it was so silly that it was really difficult to to actually do anything to to properly suppress it (laughs) Hold on, wait. So they just wait to dress up as dwarves and do what? They'd like they'd like protest. They'd protest and they they'd like turn up in on mass and disrupt events. But oh. it was just like they were just so silly dwarves. that it was it was really hard to effectively um, suppress it. Maybe do you think do you think that that the humor is a tactic here, or is it just kind of like a a sort of inherent need we have to make light? of serious situations like you know that, that urge that i'm sure everyone gets please say i'm not the only person if there's like a funeral or something and you really want to lean to the person beside you and just make some like uh ro- like joke that's inappropriate in that context you know that sort of urge that people have um i'm familiar with wanting to like t- when there is that kind of tension that you want, you don't want, you're not comfortable with that tension and humor seems like an out. I, I understand that. Yeah. So I wonder, is it, is it just that natural response that leads to comedy within protest movements? Or is it kind of people have been more um, thoughtful about it and be like, this is a tactic. Like it's hard, you know, the police may not batter us as hard if we're just seen as a bunch of clowns. Do you know what I mean? Mm, I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. Um, okay, I think I'm going to keep that in the show. That was actually relatively interesting. <laughs> <laughs> coronation, Charlie's coronation, twas too long. Uh, oh, I saw it. Oh, actually, before we go on, there was a great meme on Reddit. I absolutely loved it. Uh, that was like the uh, rumors say that uh, Charles's coronation uh, will take um, many, many hours longer than uh, Elizabeth's coronation, but due to his lack of movement. Or due to his lack of of um, motility or something, and I was like, "Oh, has he had <laughs> some? S- yeah, you know where it's going." I was like, "Has he so. had some sort of uh, like heart attack or you know because he's old and he has the his finger problem or whatever?" And the the meme had two pictures of the the floor of the chapel in which the coronation takes place, and there's a checkerboard pattern on the floor. The idea being that the queen in chess can travel great distances, <laughs> whereas the king in can only direction. travel. <laughs> In any direction, and the king can only travel one step. And I was like, that is great. Well played, internet. <laughs> um, okay, let's do some follow-up proper. Let's do some proper follow-up. Okay, there is literally only one item of follow-up uh, for the show today, and that is Irish orthography. Okay. I... I am such a fool for proudly declaring at the end of the last show that no one will disagree with me about Irish (laughs) orthography. (laughs) Because I'm not sure if this is a case. Edgar. I'm not sure if this is a case of uh, 
the negative criticisms always ring louder than support, but it felt to be very much like the, the sort of slight majority were against me in this, which to be honest with you, really fried my brain because I'm like no sane person can hold the opinion, sorry, Bill, that Irish orthography is good, but apparently, I don't know. So there's a couple of things I just want to address again and go over uh, because I feel like um, there are things I didn't explain very well because it was an in-the-moment sort of thing. Uh, sure. And there's also some clarifications I need to make. So if can I just go through the whole shebang? Yeah, That's yeah, okay. Well, okay, so the first one, just a, a correction. I kept saying um, Irish Romanization, right? Mm-hmm. And that is that is not the correct language to use. The correct language to use is that what Irish is, the way we write Irish with the Latin script, it's, it's a Latin-based orthography. Mm-hmm. I had my Conlanger hat on there to just think of like the implementation, like the the, the layering of the Latin script on top of a language is is an, is uh, Romanization, which is it's yeah. not the case here. Um, so I I will endeavor to going forward in this conversation to to say Latin based orthography and not Romanization. Um, so just and I think it was Keras in the subreddit that pointed that out. So thank you, Keras, and I'm sorry again, Conlanger's hat. Um, the the other point of clarification I want to make is is to you, Bill, because uh, I had mentioned in the last show at some point where I was like, um, it's if you're going to use the Latin script, um, there's like an opportunity for uh, cross uh, border um, communication, so foreigners can understand what the language is is doing to to an extent. And mm-hmm. I think you were like, who who understands? And I was like, I don't know, like English people. And you were like, well, I don't care what the English people understand. Um, and that is because I phrased that that section terribly. So there's two points here. One is that uh, what I was trying to get at, and I should have stuck on it to get to this point, and I didn't, was that if if uh, you your language and a bunch of geographically close languages all use the same script, there is an opportunity by default. You get for free the opportunity of having some degree of uh, intercommunication. That's not the point of using Latin script. It shouldn't be the reason why you spell things the way you spell. But I think the awareness there that there is a degree of intercommunication, uh, the ability to have intercommunication there, I think is a uh, an important thing to bear in mind. And I draw that, I, came, I come to this conclusion based on my own experiences in learning how to read German as a teen and mm-hmm. learning how to read Hangul, both the, the native script and the romanization. Um, th- those those three writing systems, if you will, um, they were in- extremely intuitive. I leave leave Hangul aside for a second. Just the romanization of of Korea and and German. They were extremely intuitive and could have and were explained to me in like five minutes. Like I distinctly remember my father sitting me down, being like, "Oh, you want to learn how to read German again." Great, that's wonderful. Here's what you need to be aware of. All the letters basically do what you'd expect these letters to do. Uh, if you see that funny looking B, that's an S sound. <laughs> if there's if there's an I, E or an EI, just say the second letter as if it was the English letter. So like that's literally all the tips that I was given. And then he handed me a really cringy romance novel called Wilder Wein und Sommerliebe and was like, read all of this. And then come back to me when you're done and we'll discuss next steps. And I sat down and read this book that I had no idea what I was reading, but I was like saying all the correct things. 
um, like out loud. And I would, I would come to him and be like, what does blah, 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 blah mean? And I would pronounce it correctly and he wouldn't need to check. Do you know? So Ooh. there is that, I, like if one leans into the sort of like um, expectations of the Latin script, there is intercommunication that I think is important. And that's one thing. Um, uh, the other thing is that when it comes to like foreigners understanding language, I think it's important to kind of uh, um, accept that we Irish people are kind of foreigners when it comes to Irish, the language. Like very few of us learn it natively. We learn it as a second language. Therefore, we are coming at uh, Irish's orthography from the context of English and to, to a lesser extent German and French because they tend to be um, also taught in school. So we have all of this context kind of screaming out like, here's roughly what the Latin script does. And then we come to Irish and go, it, Irish just throws the, the book out. Like, it just doesn't do... It barely does what everyone else is kind of doing. And I think that's a hindrance for people. Um, and particularly if you're interested in, you know, having Irish be as accessible as possible uh, in terms of keeping the language alive, I think the idea of having a spelling reform that gets it more in line with what the sort of standard expectations of the Latin script is, I think that's a strategically good thing to do. Um, even outside of just it makes it more intuitive. So um, that's what I was getting at with the understanding for foreigners. I think it mm. is important that others read the script and I, because it, it basically just amounts to its accessibility. And I think we are foreigners as well. We Irish people are also foreigners as well. So we, we I think, need that accessibility. Um, any, any retorts or responses on that, Bill? I mean, I, I think it's a gross exaggeration to say that it throws the book out. Um, okay, I was being facetious, yeah, but it does. Yeah, it does I mean, some that, I mean, no, but I mean, I mean, like, like an N still sounds like an N, and a T still sounds like a T. Um, sure, sure, but nothing. For the most but, part, the the yeah. and I mean, like you know, if you're comparing it to German, the the vowels in German aren't the same as the vowels in English. So no, 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 but but we, we'll get into we'll get into German because I have a point on German later, um, and I I was being facetious, but again, just. We need to all be aware that, like, you know, I-S-E is sh. Uh, or sometimes it might, it might even be I-S-I is also sh. Uh, or just sh. Um, mm-hmm. Or S-I is sh. So, like, th- 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 this is this is weird. Like, it's, it's, it is... I, I realize it's not doing something like, you know, the T sound is notated as Z. Like, I realize it's not going that far, but it's it's just on the extreme end in terms of doing strange things, I think, anyways. Um, so, uh, anything else on that point, or should I crack on to the next one? Crack on. Okay, so the other point is, I got I got, I got put on blast in the Reddit uh, for my comment about vowels modifying consonants. And I was like, Irish, please stop doing this. It's silly. Now, if that was a scripted segment, uh, I would have been a little bit more choosy with my words, I would have been like, Irish, the way, the, the particular way in which you're employing these vowels to signal what the quality of consonant is, is silly. Don't do that. I, I am well aware, as people have pointed out, that there are plenty of Latin-based orthographies that use vowels to indicate the quality of consonants. I, I think all of you being in the Reddit pointed out that the English word nation, for example, the I modifies <laughs> the T, um, people pointed out German as well doing uh, doing similar things. Like it happens all the time. 
Uh, but I did mention, you know, in my defense, I did mention on air the last time um, that like Irish is doing everything that you'd kind of want a, 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 a orthography to do, except in the most opaque way possible. So the idea of vowels modifying consonants is not inherently wrong or bad or unintuitive, but the particular way in which Irish is doing it, I think, is inherently just bad. Right. Um, so if someone were to come along and say, Edgar, we have a new proposal for Irish spelling. We are going to replace the Latin, the Latin, quail, the quail thing, the wrapping consonants either side with slender vowels. And we're just going to have I, for example, be a, a palatalizing con- uh, vowel. So if you see consonant plus I, you know it's a slender consonant. And we just apply that across the board. Uh, I'd be like, great, good. We've standardized what that uh, uh, slender vowel is because as it currently stands, it's sometimes I, it's sometimes E, etc. We've standardized what slender vowel is and we're using one vowel, not two. Uh, that is so much better. I would be way happier if that was the case. Um, so again, the idea is not that Irish is doing something uniquely bad. It's just being really opaque um, in its execution. Okay. Agree, disagree. <laughs> disagree. I just don't feel that strongly about it. It's mad. I really do. Because I, again, like without rehashing the whole conversation again, like I feel really strongly uh, about it from an accessibility standpoint. Um, because like it draw, it drives me nuts that I as an Irish person, uh, I went a couple of years ago, I was in the Gale Tuck to meet an old school friend. This is mm-hmm. in, in Connacht. And I'd never been to the Gale Tuck before. And it was kind of mad seeing all the signs just in Irish, no English, like the road signs. That was kind of kind of nuts. And I was immediately struck by the fact that I was better able to navigate the written world in Korea than I was in the Gaeltucht in my own country because of this bloody orthography. Like, I really do think it's it's an accessibility thing that affects, you know, native people. Um, and I just it's just needlessly complicated and causes problems, therefore. I think people would be more, would have a better attitude towards Irish if it was just more kind of like logical and, and clean, you know? Um, and never mind things like people who have problems with reading comprehension having to parse all of these mad co- uh, combinations of letters, etc. Like, if it's hard enough for me, who is like a standard, I would say a standard level of reading comprehension, imagine someone who suffers, it just, oh, it's, I really do feel strongly about it. But anyway, but we're not here to rehash the whole, um, the whole last episode. All right. Uh, next point is uh, someone in the Reddit asked me um, uh, what would be an example of a good uh, Latin-based orthography, and I was like, I think I know I'm biased here because I am German, um, but I was like, I think German does a pretty good job, and this is based on the prior experiences I just mentioned about learning it with five minutes worth of prep. Um, and so someone again, I can't remember the name, Bill. Maybe if you could find it, uh, pointed out that they think that this is. Uh, inconsistent of me because in German um, there's a bunch of weirdness going on there. So the example they highlight is that um, they use one of the strategies to show vowel length is to use consonants. So Mm -hmm. if I have a word like calm uh, with a long A uh, in German that may be written as K-A-M-M for Mm -hmm. example. 
Um, I, I just to address this point again, it, it goes back to the previous thing. I've no, Squan, you want to say something? Uh, it was, yeah, it was Wayfarer in the world, was that user? Wayfarer in the world, excellent. Um, it goes back to the previous point. I have no problems with vowels and consonants informing one another. I have a problem if that system is overly opaque. Um, but also, just in the case of that particular German example, I think it, it kind of demonstrates then why I think. German is quite good because if you see the combination K-A-M-M and you're aware of the the sort of rough standards of Latin-based orthographies, most people from, you know, France, Spain, Ireland, England would look at that world and pronounce it something like cam, right? You'll come out of that not knowing the rules, being able to roughly pronounce it correctly. But if you see a word like A-O-I-S in Irish, the same doesn't apply there. No one's going to come out of that and go, oh, that's ish, uh, unless you're Irish, basically, because it just go, runs so counter to the standard Latin-based orthography sort of practices. Um, so, yeah, th- I think even when German isn't being that great, I think German's being more than adequate. And the same thing with, like, uh, it, another strategy German has to show long vowels is to use a H, so if you had a word like K-A-H-M, that would be cam with a long A. Um, I think even if you just pronounce the H, you're kind of in the ballpark anyways. If you go kahm, you know, in fast speech, you can kind of, that kind of gets across the idea of a long vowel there. Whereas again, in Irish, A-O-I-S-H, if you go owis, it's just, it's, there's no you, way. You added a H there. <laughs> Oh, did I? Ow, you said A O I S H. Oh, did I? Sorry. A O I A O I S. Yeah, A O I S. Always. Most people would say always, um, and you, you're never going to get close to it. You know. Um, so I don't think it's a it's a it's a double standard or a contradiction because I think I think German is more logical. But but key point here: there, if your language is not Latin, it's never going to be perfect. And I'm not looking for perfection in an orthography. I'm just looking for it to be kind of as intuitive as possible. Um, I know, but I think I mean, that's obvious. Do you mean if it's if it's not Latin, as in literally, if it's not the language Latin? Correct. If I mean, that's not probably what, not perfect either. I mean, that's... Well, I mean, but it has the closest shot of being perfect, you know, because it was the, the, the orthography was designed for it. If you're not the language that the orthography was literally first designed for, you're always going to have to do weird things with those letters to make it work. So therefore, a perfect system doesn't exist, but we want to be more perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to World Building in a second. I just need to address these points. Um, the, the there was a this is the last point. You'll be glad to hear. Um, the in live chat again. This person's name I don't remember because I believe it may have been written in Greek. I think it was written in Greek uh, in the live chat from the previous video, and I can't pronounce it anyway. So I'm sorry. You know who you are. Um, apologies for not name dropping you. Um, they were. Uh, I, th- th- I think they're one of our listeners who have an intimate knowledge of Irish or at least Celtic languages. And they pointed out that in the specific case of the word Taoiseach, remember the E in that word is A-O, spelt with a digraph A-O. They were like, this works perfectly because it's unambiguous no matter what dialect you speak, right? So if you're in Connacht, so that's like the west of Ireland, for, for those who don't know, and you see A-O, you know that that is always pronounced E, right? 
If you're in Munster, that's like the south of Ireland, you see A-O, you know that's always pronounced A. And if you're in Ulster, you know A-O is always pronounced E or apparently sometimes it's pronounced U. Um, but apparently, according to the discometer, it gets weird and Ulster does mad things. So it, the, 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 yeah, if one were to notate it just as E, it would be confusing. Because a person in Munster would look at that and be like, "This, I don't know what's going on. I find this argument to be um, unsatisfying because it's like in in the sort of, um, in trying to strive for having it be completely unambiguous, you've just maximized its opaqueness. So yeah, it's unambiguous, but it's equally as opaque for everyone, which I don't think is the goal there. Uh, everyone and I think, loses and that's fair. It, well, exactly. And I don't think that's the goal. And this is a bit of a philosophical difference. Like, I, I know that there would be a lot of people who would be against the idea of imposing a standard on people. I actually kind of think that's a good thing. Um, because, like, if, if, if you're going to have, like, cross-communication on a sort of countrywide level, I think a standard is kind of needed. But I totally accept arguments that are just, like, I don't philosophically agree with that. Like, it's one of those things where there's no right or wrong answer. Um so yeah, I think it's equally opaque. And the problem is that, again, is that it kind of goes counter to what Irish is doing as well. Because like in, in other cases in language, you look at the vowel A, or like the letter A, and it makes like a low back sort of sound. Ah. And you look at O, and it makes an O sound. You go, okay, great. Now you put these two things together. What do you get? And if you're in conic, it's an E. It doesn't even make sense with itself. Do you know what I mean? Which is just silly. And also, if you look at the particular vowel sounds that are being discussed here, Connacht, E, Munster, A, and Ulster, E, or possibly sometimes, U, ignoring the last one there, they're basically just like high front sounds, right? So just nominate a glyph to be to be just that high front glyph. Make it an E, make it an A, and I, trust me, speakers will be fine. Like, no one in Munster is going to look at the words Taoiseach, spelled T-I-S-H-A-C-H, for example. No one's going to look at that and be like, well, I couldn't possibly pronounce this word. It makes no sense to me. Like, you know, we, we, we read not on a, like, letter-by-letter letter basis. Like, the, the rest of the word supplies information here. And, yeah, there might be some places where words may now get... Um, under spelling reform, may get written the same. So if you had a word like T-A-O and a word like T-I, for example, they might get written the same. That's fine. That's allowed. Ambiguity is totally fine. You're never going to have something that's perfectly unambiguous. And if you do, you'll have something that's shockingly opaque, which Irish is tending towards. And I think that's a bad thing. So I find I found that argument of like, it's clear for everyone to just be nonsensical because it's just opaque for everyone, I think. And a spelling reform is needed. Oh, and then one final point. I had a brief look at the spelling reform that you mentioned on the last show. Mm-hmm. And Literally, I kind please. of... Yes, exactly. Uh, I'll link to this again in the in this show. Um, I, I kind of disregarded it uh, out of hand very quickly because apparently your man wasn't really a linguist um, or a, or a professional in any way, shape, or form. And it it was I don't remember the details, but it became clear to me after a while that I was like, oh, okay. I don't think you understand what's going on here. Um, and I think you kind of need to get. I'd like to see a pro get into this space, get a linguist in here, and get them to like sort out this orthography um that would be a good thing so i don't think that that literal simply or simply or whatever is the is it's a good stab i think but i don't think i don't think it's there 
Um, oh, oh, and then final, final point. Sorry, Bill. I'm so sorry. Um, is people were like, spelling reforms are difficult. And I totally agree with that. Um, it would be an absolute nightmare to change Irish spelling. I'm fully on board with that. I think in a world where we can uh, put men on the moon, we can also change spelling, no matter how difficult. The question is, is it worth so we it could in have, the long run? We could have reformed Irish 60 years ago, but it's well too late now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've lost the technology to do so. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, those are my rebuttals. I am, uh, I, as always, I think I'm kind of unswayed uh, by this Um I, I just, yeah, I, I can't look at Irish spelling and in good conscience say that that is logical or that makes the, sense in any way, shape, or form. The commenter on the, um, on the live chat was uh, Kostas Opogonetos. Uh, Greek? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought so, yeah. Okay. Um, so, I, but they, they, they sounded like one of our Irish experts. Um, Maybe they just had like a, a Greek name, like like screen name, I don't, you know. Yeah, um, but we—I mean, usually, usually one of our Irish experts, you can tell like their name is in Irish. Um, so, but anyway, anyway, so that was Irish orthography. In this episode, Bill, aside from this portion, I'm going to have zero opinions, so I can get a month off on the Reddit. Because oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love y'all. I love y'all. I say that with with all the love of my heart. All right, um, anything to to follow up or close on that? Uh, and if not, let's head into world building. Uh. I don't think I have anything more to say. Okay. All right. Let's do it. World billing. World billing. World billing. What have you got for us? Oh my God, Bill. It's a short one. This episode's going to be like 20 minutes long. It is (laughs) slightly under four. It's 399 words, I think. So how much it is. Yeah. 399. Bang on. Wow, it's almost as if you wrote an extra word, you have to pay tax. You'd, you're like, you hit the, the tax bracket if you wrote 400 words. This is it. All right, let's go. Okarev, we're down to our last sacks of grain, and I must ask you one last time to please allow us some supply from the next shipment the barges bring in. You have sway on the supply committee, and I know you can help. Without a fresh stock, the brewery will shut down for the first time in generations, and there will be no more beer in the district. Do not dismiss this as a trivial affair. The Pivan Brewery has produced ales for the city for a near century, and our name and product both are well-loved. Morale behind these barricades will not thrive in a population thirsting for beer. Our bellies are far from full, I know as truly as anyone, but we do not live on food alone. Without ale to share over a meal, or to reward the labourer at the end of the shift, we would be so much poorer in spirit, a poverty we can ill afford to court in the present crisis. The brandy liberated from the towers won't stretch forever, and the Earthani don't have the means to supply us. We have made several adaptations to our methods to cope with the current paucity of ingredients, and I can certainly do more, if only I have the supply to do so. My grandfather would beat me soundly if he tasted the current batches, adulterated with water as they are. I could stand proudly and tell him, damn the dilution, I brew for the district and to keep the brewery running, if I but have my grains, Okarev. 
As ever, I will happily turn over all produce to the supply committee to see that it is distributed fairly and equitably. I can perhaps even find uses for surplus supplies not fit for distribution. The larders of the wealthy hoarded many a peculiar ingredient that may not be palatable in a dish, but can be turned to brewing. Lastly, my boys did not steal the wheat from Halev's bakery, whatever that sour scoundrel may claim. You are welcome to come and do a full audit of my stock. All our grain is accounted for. It shall not take you more than a few minutes, bare as it lies. Not just for myself, but for the health of the district, I look forward to hearing your reply. Yours, Mied Pivan. Okay. Uh, was this... Is this meant as comedy? Not especially. I, I guess there's like some so, sort of comic bits in it, but it's not like specifically. I thought, I thought this was hilarious, Bill. Okay. <laughs> like I was, I muted myself because I was laughing at it. Maybe it was just your delivery that, uh, that, that did it. But yeah, I was like giggling as you were reading that. That was hilarious. Um, as always, give the summary and then I'll, I'll interrogate you somewhat. Uh, so this is a brewery behind the barricades in Lansk, uh, struggling to keep running. And uh, Mied, the owner, is uh, writing to someone who's on the supply committee, who's kind of the ad hoc group that's dealing out food and such, um, sort of imploring them to, to make sure that there's some grain allotted for the brewery so that they can keep running. Wow, you've answered a bunch of my questions already. Oh my god, this really will be an incredibly short show. Um, okay, uh, the, the main question I have here is that, like, Mied here, obviously, like, they own the brewery. They want to keep doing business, right? Um, yeah. But also, they're, they're, like, treating this lack of beer as a kind of almost, like, public health crisis, you know? As in, like, whatever will we drink if we don't have beer? Uh, now, I know that back in the day, I think anyways, back in the day, it was safer to drink alcohol than it was to drink water because like alcohol was sterile or whatever the hell. Um, I I have heard that. I have heard people also dispute that, but I know that is a thing that is said. I'm okay. a little skeptical of it. Okay. Okay. Well, so I guess if we just lean into that for a second, yeah. I, I, is it the fact that these people could just drink water and everything's fine? Or is the water supply so bad that maybe it is better to to buy purchased liquids, beer or no? Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I reckon they probably have like a reasonably okay, um, water supply. Um, but you know, he, he's making the, the, the point that, well, okay, okay. So historically, like a lot of people did just drink, uh, beer um, yeah, or, yeah, you know, yeah. it would have been, it would have been the main and not necessarily because of, you know, uh, I don't know that it was necessarily a lack of, of access to potable water was the reason. Um, but you know, I'm just kind of building on that historical thing, um, that you know, beer was mm. widely drunk, um, a few centuries ago. Is it because like beer gets you drunk? Is that essentially it? Do you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't mm. know necessarily. I mean, like it, it, it is made from um, it is made from grains. You know, it carries like nutritional value as well. What? You know, since, beer carries well, nutritional value. It's good. F- load of the calories. That's why you get beer guts. Yeah, yeah, but it's like all bad. <laughs> like it's not, none of it is none of it's good. Th- there's no moral dimension to it. It's got calories on it. 
Yeah, but no, hang on. I know. I, I realize that calories sort of borrowed the benches to them, but like, isn't there like there's such thing as like good cholesterol, bad cholesterol? We you know the thing we say empty calories. Like, does that have maybe that's not a scientific term? It means nothing. Um, because I was, I, I'm always on the impression that like 200 calories does not necessarily equal 200 calories. Like, if you have 200 calories of beer versus 200 calories of like fruit, like clear difference in terms of like health. Like, one may give you a beer gut, the other one probably won't, etc. I don't know. Hmm. Doctors, but, let like, us know. Nutritionists. You know, if you're, if you're working those calories off, I, I'm assuming you're going to get them back from whatever source. Oh. Okay, so you're leaning into the idea that everyone is basically drinking beer. Uh, that all it was the time. commonly drunk in, in, in history, yes. Yeah. You, you, you quote, do not dismiss this as a trivial affair. Well, I mean, no, I think there's, there's a sort of a truth to that. I mean, as a, as like a, a small social ritual to drink a pint with someone, or, you know, to share, to share food and, and a drink, whether it's beer, whether it's wine, whether it's a, a cup of tea, um, you know, there is, there is a, there is a social weight and a social value to that. But I guess real talk here, is Mied actually concerned about that or are they concerned about the bottom line? He's not going to make any bottom line. He's, he's, he's said, I'll happily turn over all projects to supply committee. He's not, he's not going to be making money in this well, case but, either way. But, but has he not said that because he's like, give me grain, yo. I'll offer you whatever, just give me the grain. Doesn't mean he has to reciprocate on that. He just needs to get them, he just needs them to give him grain. No, he's, he's pretty sincere about that. I mean, he's probably going to sell a bit on the side, like... But, you know, that's just like, you know, normal kind of good, honest corruption. He's not, but he's not doing this out of like actual um, title, total avarice. Um, you know, he just, he wants to keep it going and he thinks that, you know, the people will need beer. Now, he may be misled in, in, in that. He may think that more um, intently than is, is um, warranted by the fact that he is a professional brewer. But that doesn't mean he's insincere. Sure. Sure. And I guess you have a line here um, that kind of shows that he is kind of severe. Quote, I would stand, and also, actually, this line is what made me laugh the most. I think it's hilarious. Quote, I could stand proudly and tell him, damn the delusion. I brew for the district and to keep the brewery running. If if I but have my grames, Okarev. Um, I love that. Damn the delusion. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's kind of disgusted with himself that he's had to like water down the product, but you know he's had to do it to keep running. Yeah, I, do do you foresee or, or do people um, like moonshine a lot here? Because if the if the brewery isn't running up and running, and like I'm assuming regular folks don't have the same level of artistry as our friend Mied has here, they'll just be like chuck some spuds in a bathtub and let's be having some crack. Um, is there a lot of illicit drink going around the place? Um, I mean, there's probably a little bit, but you know, there's not a, enough like excess food for people to, on a small scale, be willing to uh, mm. turn to to brewing or to to distilling. Oh, that's interesting. That's really like I had never considered actually. Because I always think of uh, when I think of like alcohol, I think of it as being just a liquid, like not a food. I know we just talk about calories, but leave that aside for a second. But then if I, I neglect to uh, remember that it takes food to make the alcohol, mm. um, be it grain or potatoes or something like that. And so that's really interesting. And moon, 
moonshining may not occur if there isn't a relative level of stability already, food stability. Like the area needs to be food stable before people can start moonshining, which is not how I I would intuitively think about it. I would intuitively think about being like, if everyone's dirt poor and broke, they need some escape, some release, um, so moonshine away. Um, Hmm. That's intriguing. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's a there's a difference between sort of poverty and you know being nearly starved out of it because of like the the blockades and such, um, because obviously mm-hmm. you know you know you you do get moonshining in in poor areas and and whatever, but there's still like that's probably not going to happen if people if there's a like mass actual starvation going on. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're not going to get moonshining during a famine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, and in this case, like, it's not, you know, there, there, there is, there was food already in the, the region behind the barricades. And there's, you know, it's it's not like starting from zero. It's it's starting from kind of an uneven um, playing field anyway. Um, so, like, there's probably a little bit of it happening, but I wouldn't say it's a large scale um, undertaking mm. or that many people are doing it. Uh, on the Pivan Brewery here, um, mm-hmm. Mied says the Pivan Brewery, quote, the Pivan Brewery has produced ales for the city for near a century and our name and product both are well loved. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel on that when long running businesses close? Because part of me with your whole like uh, anti-capitalist sort of bent would be like, you know, down with the corporations, down with the businesses. Um but part of me also thinks that, you know, you're quite a, you kind of, I, I think anyways, you value, value kind of like heritage and tradition and things uh, to, to mm-hmm. an extent. So I wonder where you actually stand on that. Like if there's a pub somewhere, for example, um, that's been going for like 200 years and it closes or something, do you feel bad or do you kind of be like, yeah, well, it's great that that no longer contributes negatively to society? It would depend on if I thought it was contributing negatively to society. There's a whole extra conversation about the role of alcohol in modern life. I think that could be had here. But yeah, oh, but you, like, I mean, no, I mean, like, I, I, I don't object to the, um, the trade of, uh, uh, being a bar owner. Like, that's fine. There's, I don't. That's not a thing I object to. Um, and when you say like anti-capitalist, you know, I, I. I, I'm, I don't object to people having businesses and owning businesses and making a living through business. Um, oh, yeah, so, okay. So, so if Tesco were to go under, you'd be like, who gives a crap? But if there's some, uh, if there's a, a mom and pop, uh, like knit shop in the town and they've been going for 25 years and it goes under, you might be like, oh, that's sad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, okay. no, I, I, I object to markets being the defining feature of every aspect of society mm-hmm. not to the fact that people can trade money for things that's that's cool you can do that if you want i don't mind <laughs> thanks bill yeah <laughs> you have my permission <laughs> all right cool um the uh, tell me about this supply committee um so the way you have it outlined here is that it, it looks like it's kind of like a gathering resources and redistributing them through the area um, a quote, as ever, I will happily turn over all produce to the supply committee to see that it is distributed fairly and equitably, end quote. Um, 
How is this working? Who is in charge? Is it fair? Is it equitable? What are the mechanics here? Um, I mean, it probably isn't fully fair. Um, it's so when the barricades went up, and this district was was cut off from the rest of Lansk. Um, these committees formed and kind of gave themselves the the roles to uh, give themselves the the jobs that they said we're in charge of this. So we're in charge of monitoring the barricades. We're in charge of public safety. We're in charge of supply, etc. Um, and they're kind of. They're kind of self-appointed, um, and as such, it's probably not an ideal system. It's probably far from an ideal system, but they're, for the most part, doing the best they can. Um, again, there's probably a few people in it who are opportunist or corrupt in some way, um, but you know there hasn't been any kind of formal oversight here. There hasn't been any a lot of time to ease off on the the intensity of the situation to change things around and make sure that things are um fair to put in checks and balances or anything um so they're keeping people fed uh for the most part uh but they could probably be doing a better job of it and it's not probably probably not entirely out of out of charity or uh revolutionary zeal okay and who is keeping I know you said the checks and balances aren't really a thing yet, but like, how is the supply committee enforcing its um, mandate to collect the resources and redistribute them? Redistribute them. Um, like, is everyone just acting really nice and being like, "Of course, we'll give up all of our our um, uh, the fruits of our labor to this central pool and it'll be redistributed no, no, for the greater good." Not, not everyone is. Not everyone is, but they do have like uh, bodies to intimidate people who who are not playing along. If if it comes to that, um, they're the ones who are in contact with the with the Earthani, and they're the ones who are unloading it, who are unloading the shipments, and so on. And people will be like, "Oh well, you know, if I get on the supply committee, then I'll be in sure that I can get my own uh, food, or can I can feed my own family." Oh, is this supply committee, like, I I have it in the head that the supply committee is like three people. Is this more of a kind of like a big giant AGM? And the the check is that basically everyone is on the committee. No, there's probably like a a few people running it, like a a handful of people running it, but they will like get people to work for them. Say, okay, you know, on the authority of the supply committee, we're going to go and do this. And it's because they're doing it. And it is keeping people fed and people will go along with it so that they don't get their own food supply cut off. It's just kind of working for the moment. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and what are the sort of like, is there any, I guess no one thinks this is a permanent situation. So no one is making any moves to, to uh, codify anything that's going on. I'm assuming that's the case. Like this is all ad hoc. Um, this isn't yeah. really like a government being set up. No, it's not. Okay. Um, okay. Um, on a change, change of, of tact here, quote, mm-hmm. the larders of the wealthy hoarded many a peculiar ingredient that may not be palatable in a dish, but can be tr- turned to brewing, uh, end quote. Um, it's, I just get the image of like these kind of like working class people seeing a truffle and being like, 
the hell is this? Ooh, that tastes weird. Chuck it into brewer and make beer out of it. Is that what's going on there? It's like some mad foreign import. Like caviar. You can't put caviar on your beans and toast. Put it in the brewer. Let's go. I I think that they're smart enough to know that they can eat caviar and... Actually, caviar is commonly eaten on toast, which I find very amusing. Um, uh, Wait, on toast? Yeah, caviar on toast. Is is it like a reasonably common way to eat caviar, I think? I thought you have it on, like, crackers. No, you have it on toast. Toasted bread. Stop it. Hold on. That needs to be Googled. Hold on. I need to see this. Um, I remember way back, um, Lidl, which is our kind of, like, uh, budget supermarket over here, folks, was selling caviar. And I was like, wow, we have hit peak bouge mm. right now. This man- Oh, yeah, look at that. It's a slice of tro- toast with just caviar. Yeah, see, I'm used to, I'm used to um, this. I'll send you a picture. I, I won't put butter puddings in the show notes. This is just um, a picture of some caviar on crackers. That's the thing I usually see, like caviar as tapas, basically. Okay, yeah, sure. sure. So, so what is the intent? I mean, I've, of- I've never eaten it, so I don't know, but... Caviar is, I think it's, and I'm not just saying this to be kind of like contrarian, I think it's, it's overhyped. Like it tastes like fish. It's like little fish balls. Like it's, it's, it's no different than eating an actual just piece of fish, except, you know, pound for pound costs however many times more. Um, Yeah, there's nothing special about it. And in fact, a lot of the kind of like real fancy foods, I think they're just scams like that like status symbols that rich people use to just feel more rich because i've had um foie gras i've had foie gras before now admittedly this is pre-vegetarian times and also pre me me understanding what the hell foie gras actually is um i think had i known the horrific practices that go into producing foie gras uh, i would never have touched it but you know there we go uh but yeah it just tasted like really fatty like pate and it's like, this, this isn't even nice. Like, what are you talking about? Like, truffle, I mean, it's fine, but it's not kind of like this sort of, this, like, it, the way it's kind of, like, branded and sold is as if like, it's this mind-blowing thing. And it's like, no, it, like, it just, it's a, like a flavor enhancer type thing. I don't know. I think I think a lot of that rich people stuff is nonsense. Um, it, it's like, it's like the... Um, designer brands of the world it's it's those are for the food world what designer brands are for the clothing market i think um but oh my god that's an opinion i'll never be able to go into reddit again i joke (laughs) i joke i joke i joke um so the so what is meant by this line the larders of the wealthy hoard many a peculiar ingredient is this just an idea that like the, the rich have more they they're able to source food from all over the place it seems like an odd line to just throw in there uh, so how that came up was I was thinking about um, the, the process of brewing uh, when I was writing this, and then I realized I wasn't actually sure what hops are. Hmm. Nor am I, um, actually. It's a flower. No. Yeah. What? Yeah. So it's uh, the, they're the flowers of the hop plant, Humulus upulus. Um, and it's used as bittering, flavoring, and stability agent in beer. Um, wow. So, and before the hops started being used in like the 900s, I think, uh, there was, they would use other things. Um, and so th- that wouldn't be called beer anymore, but it was what was called beer at the time. Um, and I was thinking, you know, there's actually, there's different things you can use 
for mm. um that role in in brewing um so maybe they just like do some weird stuff in some uh wealthy officer's larder that you're not going to be able to eat or easily turn into food but the brewer might find some kind of use for it um can, can you can can you brew like basically anything into alcohol i mean it needs to have sugars well it needs to have carbohydrates that can and starch i think that can turn into sugars that can turn into alcohol oh okay so it needs to have a high starch content okay so you can't like you can't you can't just like take a a lump of sky jellyfish for example and turn that into some sort of fermented alcoholic beverage no probably Mm. not probably sky Mm. jelly wouldn't wouldn't by itself i mean you could you could you could do something interesting with it i'm sure the way, you know, people make, like, chocolate nutmeg stouts and things, which is also a little bit of what I was getting at there, you know, if you've got, like, stuff you can't use to eat by itself, you might just, but you, you know, you don't want to waste the space hoarding it, um, you know, the brewer will do something, make some, make some crafty nonsense with it. Chocolate nutmeg stout. Wow. That's, that sounds, I don't know, that could be either amazing or awful. Yeah, I, I I don't like beers that are that are too have too many other things in them. Generally, you're a plain man. You're a plain Jane. You want your beer to be taste like beer. No, no, no. Um, it occurs to me actually, isn't I think Guinness is not vegetarian, or at least wasn't vegetarian for a while because there's some fish stuff in Guinness. It's um, it is now. Yeah, I think it it is it is vegan now actually, but previously ooh. there was some kind of fish thing. Or I know there's oyster stouts, but maybe that's a separate thing not related to the Guinness. So maybe maybe the sky jellyfish can be can be can come into play in that regard here. Yeah, um, absolutely. No, absolutely. No. It's, um, it's, it's um it's bladder glands, not not like uh, urine bladder, but like buoyancy bladder glands. Mm-hmm. Um, air bladders have some air bladders have some mm-hmm. have some use. Um, anything on uh, Halev's bakery here? This is um your man, or I don't know if it's it's a man or or a woman, but Mied uh was like my lads, uh they did not steal anything from Halev's bakery, uh whatever that scoundrel will say. Um, anything of note about Halev's bakery? They absolutely did. They absolutely did. <laughs> they you know they they one hundred percent they 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 stole a uh, uh, a couple of bags of of grains. Um, tot, tot, tot. that were like just like on a cart or something because he was like, oh, like we're, we're really stuck like we need some more to, to brew with go on have a look down well, at Hallow's Bakery and see if you can can nab some of that I mean if anything uh, bread is probably more important than beer right now <laughs> sure but like Hallow had loads <laughs> he had loads he's got his own. <laughs> sure he's well in the supply committee Oh, oh, I see. I see. Oh, is that what's going on here? Uh, I mean, I only just thought of that now, but yes, possibly. <laughs> mm, very good, very good. He's like, oh, Caliph is way too much. There's like, you know, you know there, there, there is some bread, but we're going to have no beer if this stops. So just go on. Take two. Get- They'll hardly even notice. And I guess that leans into the sort of um, um, problems with the supply committee in terms of fairness and uh, equ- equitable, yeah. equability. Um, that's cool actually I like that and like the, the people who are running it like they have their own ideas about what should be done and maybe some of them are like opposed to alcohol um, mm-hmm. or just they haven't considered that side of things 
um, and they're not necessarily experts in in provisioning an entire city district during a crisis. So things are going to go wrong. Um, even with the best one in the world, things would go wrong because, of, you know, they're not equipped for the, the task they have. I recall years ago, there's this documentary on, I think it was Channel 4, and I think it was called something like Charlie's Chocolate Factory, like something like a riff on mm-hmm. the, the book. And I think it was some bloke who was called Charlie who um, went to, I'm going to say something like Costa Rica and bought a chocolate plantation. And his shtick was that he was like, I love chocolate. Like chocolate is the best thing ever. But it wasn't just like, I'm buying this to like make a bunch of candy bars. Like, no, no, I want chocolate to be in everything. So he was like, if you take 100% cocoa or something, it basically functions a lot like pepper. Um, so you can like season food with with mm. with, with chocolate and you can put it was, like chili and stuff. Yeah, he was forever doing things like that. Like he really thought that like the key, like his staple crop, basically was chocolate. Um, and it, it just reminded me of what you're saying. That that reminded me of what you're saying. Where it's like people like like clearly the baker is going to be like no no bread is the most important and the brewer is going to be no beer is the most important and then the chocolate maker is going to be like no 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 chocolate's the most important so no one's going to agree on what actually is the most important um and therefore one needs a supply committee basically um yeah because no one will no one will um agree now now um the final thing i have to say i think is uh just just a funny little thing i've you've done this before i absolutely love the, the turn of phrase the supply of brandy liberated from the towers i love the idea of liberating booze i think that's so fun <laughs> because you know you think of liberating people but i love the idea of like this book was liberated or this this inanimate object was liberated mm. <laughs> i just think that's so that's so fun um those are my points have you anything oh no no, no one final point uh okarev the the writer of the um message um no o- the... okarev is the recipient sorry is the recipient sorry you're correct yeah it's, um, is the is the writer yes of course yeah, yeah um what do what's what's this person shtick this is person is a supply committee member no the person who wrote it no the recipient the recipient uh is on the supply committee yes, yes okay. is on the supply committee yes okay okay grand um and then you made is just it's probably like a, a, a member of the Lansk popular executive who who start, kicked the whole thing off and that's why you know Mead reckons, oh, well, they will have sway on the supply committee. I will address them. And as I said, I must ask you one last time. It's not the first time he's made this request. Mm. Well, maybe Mead needs to start writing some of the other members. He's lobbying the wrong congressman. Could be. Yeah, could be. I love the Lance Popular, the LPE. Someone needs to make like Soviet-style art with just LPE on it. Do you know what sort of like very stark red, white, black propaganda poster we need to have that that's what I, any artists out there i need some soviet era uh artwork propaganda artwork made please and thank you yeah i i would i would lean towards it maybe a little bit earlier if there's like examples of radical artworks from like the 1800s that would be i think we talked about this before that there did you point me in a direction um okay how would you I, even Google that man? Google what? Trying to find earlier forms of that art. 18th or 1800s radical. Yeah, I wrote I wrote protest, protest, art. protest artwork 1800. 
I mean, there's, yeah, there's like woodcuts. Um, Brief history of protest. Would your vibe be more this? This seems a little bit. Uh, links in the show notes, folks. Okay, here in in chat, uh, it's the bit on votes for women, which I know is not 1800s, but the vibe is less Soviet era. Oh, that that poster there. Yeah, votes for women. Yeah, potentially, potentially. Mm. Also, um, if you if you look at there's a there's a tradition in the UK of uh, I think they're like union standards. So so labor unions will have like. They're nearly like regimental colors, like they're flags with um, embroidery and and symbols and stuff on them. And that would probably be something that would be quite common. I am struggling to get anything because if you go union flag, you know, you get the expected. What 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 would you Google for this? Labor union flags, maybe trade union banners. Trade. Banners UK. Yes, that gives me the, the kind of thing. That oh, I oh man, that is that is. Oh, this is what happens when you when you let people design things. Oh, but they're, they're not flags. They're not I, flags. No, no, so. I, I don't. I don't even care. This is all like there's this one picture here. Like there's a stock here. Links in the show notes, folks. Uh, first image here, Bill. Um, that is an assault on the senses, right there. <laughs> is it green and red? No, no, it's just like all of the, the collection of all the flags there in that first image. It's just an oh, absolute okay. assault on the senses. There I'm really just, into this. There's so much going on here, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you, you'd you like something like that. Yeah, yeah, like 19th century trade union banners. Yeah. Okay, 19th century trade union banners. Would be, cool. would be more what I would envision would, would, would exist. With LPE written all over, all over them. But see, then, then I have, then I have to invent a, a conscript, and I have to figure out their language and stuff. <laughs> no, you don't have to. Well, I suppose you do, actually, don't you? Um, for, for for the way my my brain works. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Um, okay. Have I missed anything? Um. Have you missed anything? Um. I don't think so. Okay. Shall we go to the world's shortest green room? <laughs> Let's go to the world's shortest green room. Okay, you have a last-minute addition to the green room. Uh, it says mm-hmm. here, Bill's Culinary Expe- Explorations dot dot dot, a.k.a. Ellipses. I'm intrigued. What a clickbait title. Tell me more. Um, so I think we discussed before, maybe it was, wasn't on air, but I think it was on air, about one of my uh, food aversions. Like, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm not like a particularly picky eater. There's a few things that I don't like, but in general, you know, I I will happily eat a lot. Mm. Um, but you were shocked to discover that I don't eat mushrooms. Yes. Uh, does this sound familiar? They're having this discussion. Yeah, I can't remember if it was on air, but yeah, you don't you, you don't like it because they grow in the dark. I I think they are not trustworthy. Yes. The, yes. Yeah. They're suspicious. No. They're, I am suspicious of them. Mm. Um, but. In the spirit of trying new things oh. and um, also trying to find, like, uh, stuff to eat instead of meat, to, like, to, oh. to reduce the amount of meat I eat, I recently tried lion's mane mushroom and I cooked it like a steak. Hold on, Googling. I don't know that one off the top of my head. Lion's mane 
mushroom because I I for, I would have sworn you um would have said portobello mushroom because that's the usual steak um substitute. Oh wow, where did you get these? These are not standard mushrooms, my friend. So there's a a reasonably a new stall in the farmers market in my town, um where there's just like these people who just sell mushrooms and they they like make loads of like mushroom uh, concoctions and like mushroom teas and mushroom powders and things um and they're all like really into how good mushrooms are for you and all the benefits of eating mushrooms and i was talking to to the guy one day at the farmer's market and he he said oh you know you know lion's mane now you could cook that like a steak and i really thought about that and i went away and i thought about it for a while and then about a, two weeks ago i took the plunge Bought mm. some lion's mane. He didn't have that much lion's mane, so I had to buy a tray that had some lion's mane and some some oyster mushrooms. Uh, oysters are nice. I like oysters. Um, and yeah, so I, a friend of mine came over. We said we'd try this together. Uh, cut the lion's mane. Now there was only a little bit, so we didn't have like a massive steak, but cu- cut it kind of thick, and then I marinated it the way I do a steak, and mm. I sautéed the tore up the oysters and sautéed them with onions. Um, and then, you know, cooked the, cooked the lion's mane that had been marinating, dumped the rest of the marinade in on top of the sautéed, uh, onions and oysters. And it was actually pretty good. So I Mm. think, I think I might have found a way into mushrooms now. Good. I'm glad. The world of mushrooms is rich and diverse. And I always find it really sad when people don't like them. I get it. They're a bit slimy, but there's so many cool varieties and they're each, they're, they each are, like, can be radically different. Like, the difference between a shiitake mushroom and, like, your standard bottom mushroom is is, is crazy. Yeah. Um, so See, it, these ones, these ones weren't slimy. They were, they were fine. Like, even, even mushroom soup, I've always felt like mushroom soup, it's either, it tastes like the texture of mushrooms or the texture of mushroom soup is like the taste of mushrooms. There's some, it doesn't quite make <laughs> sense how that could happen, but there's some kind of, like, cross modality of the sensations there which i found very very off-putting um but i didn't experience any of that in in this meal i i i totally get where you're coming from with that i agree like i'll eat it because i'll eat just about everything but i i it would not be my first choice of soup a mushroom soup for the reasons you outlined um do you know what i think actually is a great way into mushrooms aside Mm -hmm. from you know steak substitute the way you did it just in case anyone else wants some tips on how to get into mushrooms i think the sliminess is generally a bit of an issue um and a lot of the standard mushrooms one gets in a, in a grocery store have that sort of slimy edge to it so i recommend um people get into mushrooms eating them raw in a salad okay because then they just like they're not crunchy, but they're definitely not slimy. Um, so just just get yourself like a little spinach salad going, and just slice up a couple of thin little button mushrooms and throw them in there and eat them raw, and it is totally grand. Like it's it's incredibly inoffensive, um, a taste, and then you can graduate up from that, and then you can have like really baller mushroom dishes. It'd be great. Cool. Congratulations. Do you want to know an, uh, an item of food that I have? Uh, gotten over that i can i can now eat i do Hmm. because i think this is possibly the only food i can mention that i wouldn't really eat outside of like ethical reasons like you know i can eat a steak i choose not to um Mm. the only food that i was like i will not eat this food it's awful was marmite and 
what was it like last month or no, two months ago when when we were getting married we were over uh with my aunt and i mentioned about how marmite is awful and, and she was like oh no i love it i always have a jar of marmite and so uh, it was lunchtime one of the days and i was like oh, i need to make something to eat and i was like I should give this marmaid a crack. And so I started with like tiny, like the, like like uh, some uh, toast with lots of butter and like the tiniest little bit of marmite. And I was like, it wasn't mm. too bad. And then more and more. And by the end of the week, I was having like full on marmite sandwiches. And I was like, it's grand. Like this taste is a bit peculiar. Um, and I wouldn't say that like I'm, I'm particularly fond of it, but I didn't have the sort of like, uh, I got rid of the sort of repulsion I had to it. Um, so like, in a pinch, I could I could happily eat marmite and it's fine. Um, so I don't think that's the last food. I, I cannot, I literally cannot think of another food that I won't eat. Like anything, if it's edible, it's going in, basically. You're, you're fine with all nuts? All nuts, yeah, all nuts are fine. Okay. Um, what, what are other common aversions? Are you, are you one of those people who can't taste cucumber? Uh, I mean, I, I like cucumber. Cucumber's okay. nice. I don't know what the, I, I don't know what you mean by can't taste it. Like it, it, it There's cucumber. a certain thing in cucumber that some people just can or they can't taste, and people who can taste it don't like cucumber. Well, I mean, cucumber tastes like cucumber, so. But there's like a specific thing in it. Oh. Okay. That and apparently it's like a genetic thing where you can or can't oh. taste it. Oh well, I mean, I I don't know if I do or not. I like cucumber, so whatever that implies. I also yeah. what's the other what's the other herb? That people are like genetically, yeah, yeah, it tastes like soap or something um, mm. to some people. I don't have that. Um, and even things that actually do taste like literal soap, I'll happily eat those as well. Like rose water is a thing where lots of people won't won't do anything that has rose water in it because it tastes like dishwashing liquid. And I'm like, yeah, it does, but it's grand. Get it down the food hole. Let's go. <laughs> it's like Edgar's patented fairy liquid lasagna. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, I think I think I just don't have a very like evolved palate because sometimes it take, <laughs> sometimes it takes people pointing out these tastes to me to make it aware of it. Like I distinctly remember being in um, uh, a restaurant with some of uh, the captain's friends, and I ordered a dessert that had rose water in it because the, the title of the dessert sounded cool. And one of the friends turned to me and was like, "But rose water makes everything taste like soap," and I was like, "No." And then the dessert arrived, and I ate it, and I was like, oh my god, yeah, it tastes like soap. Huh. And then I just proceeded to eat the dessert. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, there isn't really anything I won't, uh, I won't eat. I'm just, yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not very picky about these things. Um, <laughs> now, can I, I have two things to talk about real quick before we wrap up the show. Sure. Uh, one is it's not it's just a, a micro point. It came up in the last show about we talked about called midwife. Um, okay. It, I don't know if that actually stayed on the show or got cut. I can't remember. But TLDR for folks called midwife is a uh, English TV show um, that's set in like I think the late fifties, early sixties, and it follows a bunch of midwives in like a working class area of London, and you know it, it gives you basically a, a, an insight into life during that period it's like a period drama um and so i started watching it anyways because you said it was good in the last in the last show um we were about a season and a bit into it i think the show is very good and you know what what i thought about it i thought that uh this show is star trek it's it's like a new star trek because it follows the same formula as star trek 
and seem and does the same thing that Star Trek does, at least the original Star Trek. The idea being that each of these episodes can be kind of like self-contained little stories. There isn't there is overarching tre- uh, like multi-episode threads, but for the mm. most part, each episode is is its own thing, and it looks at a certain social condition like be it like abortions or race relations or Mm. uh, you know extreme poverty and each episode does that and it's it's through the lens of these nurses going around interacting with the locals and in trek it's the same thing each episode at least old trek is like a self-contained little thing uh with a couple of multi episode arcs but not that many um and then each episode you go to a different planet and on said different planet you learn about a different social condition that's going on like racism or abortion or things like that um and then every episode wraps up nice up and we've we've questioned what it is to be human uh, in the process it's the exact same formula and i was like this is great i love this so called the midwife very fun and also like stupidly british and like leans into like the hilarity uh of kind of like posh britain a little bit in places and i find that very fun too I think some of what you're describing there is just yeah, quite common in how TV was before The Sopranos. <laughs> I, I mean, that that is entirely fair. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, I, which is not a, a criticism of your point, and I think there's probably, there are probably other resonances that aren't covered by that. But um, because I, I, the reason I think that is because I've, I've been watching a lot of Star Trek recently. Um, and I'm really enjoying that it's, yeah, you get 45 minutes and that's, that's the episode. And you, you know it. there are ongoing things, um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, you can basically just tune in and tune out at any stage. I mean, I I guess it's by design because back in the day you couldn't really binge. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it it is kind of it is kind of a little bit um of a a bit of a relief, like a palate cleanser, to to. Uh, have a show like this as opposed to like we just came off the back of vikings as i've mentioned for the past number of months running where it's like one single narrative for like seven seasons basically um and like that's cool and that's wonderful but it's kind of cool to just uh be like we're sitting down for 45 minutes and we're going to learn about abortions in the east of london cool and then we're done um it's very fun so that is called the midwife call the midwife is trek and i think that's 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 great um the final point is um I would like to set the next book for Artifacts in Book Club Corner. Um, This book is called A Master of Gin, and I really should have put down the author's name. I think it's P. Jelly Clark, I think is the thing. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Um, Folks, uh, between between, uh, myself and Bill have been discussing about what to do here. I had read uh, a book called The Jasmine Throne. And I've just finished reading A Master of Gin. And I also want to read a book called Children of Time. I had told Bill last week, or last time we recorded, that um, I'll read all his books and come back to him with a, with a, a suggestion for one out of the three to bring to the show and review. Um, I just finished Master of Gin, and I think I'm willing to make a call that we should read Master of Gin. Because this book, Bill, is hilarious. This book... Okay. This book... like. Maybe I'm just completely getting the wrong end of the shtick here because its Wikipedia page seems to imply that it's some great, like, social commentary thing going on. I think zero, like, this book is doing nothing. This book has nothing got to say except it's just a fun ride. It's like how you described, I think, the 
third Star Trek, Star Wars movie where the horses are on the Star Destroyer. And you're like, this is just silly fun. Um, I think this book is that. And I'm intrigued to see whether or not I'm missing the point. So I think we definitely, definitely should read this and chat about it in a a, a future episode. So A Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark. Uh, Again, links in the show notes. So we will, I don't know, depending on how fast Bill reads books, possibly do that next month. Yeah, um, next one, yeah. Okay, Grant. Um, and because I don't think this book, because I really don't think there isn't a lot to this book to dig into, I think we might also do a sort of a bit of a standard episode and do the book review in the green room. I can't imagine we'll need two hours <laughs> to trash through this book. Like, <laughs> so I think I think we'll do a normal episode plus the book review at the end. Um, I think that's the way to go. Um, cool. Y- you happy with that? Yeah. Okay, and just real quick to give people a bit of a bit of a, a teaser, uh, this is like a cop drama, um, uh, like a CSI type of vibe, except set in steampunk nineteen twelve, I think Cairo, where the um, monsters of sort of like Middle Eastern mythology are real, like they are physically real and bopping around Cairo. The whole book is just, it's a whole thing. <laughs> definitely worth we definitely go check it out. Um so yeah, that's what we're gonna do next month. Neat. Neat. Okay. Um until next time I grow out. Bye. Until next time I grow out. <laughs> I think that's the show. Have you got anything else out? I do not. Cool. Um so as always, thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for watching. Hi chat. Love y'all. Um and yeah, we'll, 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 we'll see you in June. Until next time, Edgar Edgar Rouse. Rouse.